Hi there, and welcome to the Endurance Limits podcast. Today, we hear a deep dive conversation between Darren Clawson and Simon Evans, two of the crewmates in the upcoming expedition to row two and a half thousand miles across the Pacific from California to Hawaii. This episode is the first in a series of getting to know you conversations in an attempt to bring you closer to the team before their endurance feat. In case you weren't already aware, this challenge is being attempted as a fundraising effort for some remarkable charities, in addition to raising awareness for the issue of ocean plastics and how they are affecting the environment. The entire team thanks you for listening to this podcast, as well as for any donations or contributions that are made to their chosen charities. If you would like to contribute, you can visit the Endurance Limits website at www.endurancelimits.net where you can find links to donate in addition to share the amazing work the team are doing. Now, before we begin, there needs to be a special shout out to Essential PLC, who are the main sponsors for this project. Essential are a hugely successful multinational company that have remained resolute in the desire to be socially responsible. They are at the very top of their field as a company, but they are also compassionate, caring and hold a genuine desire to make the world a better place. The whole Endurance Limits team are proud to be associated with them and they are incredibly grateful for their ongoing support. Now, with that out of the way, let's jump into the episode. We hope you enjoy it. <laughs> We're going to have a lot of trouble taking ourselves seriously doing this. Us, <laughs> this could go on for a long, long time. Right, serious face, come on, concentrate. So the idea of these podcasts is for, um, is for us to speak to all, each member of the team individually have a general chat um, and find out who you are and just basically introduce you to the to the wider world. Everyone's going to want to know about you and about why you're doing this row and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> we're going around, we're going to speak to, obviously we've already done one with Justin Adkin, the boat builder. Um, we're going to speak to each member of the team individually and there's a, a couple of other people around the project that are going to do them as well. So with that in mind, um, I'm going to start off with just asking you about you, where, where about you grew up, um, Talk to me about your childhood. I know that's one of your favourite questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, where did I grow up? I grew up between sort of Bedford and Cambridge, different places in between. Led to row in Bedford originally, where I went to school, and then subsequently in Cambridge uh, for many, many years. <sighs> what else is there? Links that obviously I went to school in, in those areas. Um, you moved about school-wise. No, only twice. I kind of like did my GCSEs in Bedford and then my levels in, in Cambridge. And that's kind of where I then did most of my rowing with one of the town clubs um, and a lot of the competitive stuff. So I kind of moved from under 16 straight into, kind of skipped the under 18s bit and straight into rowing with some of the big boys, which was quite good fun. Um, after that, Obviously went off to, to uni and did a, did a few things. I'd always played around with um, cycling quite a lot. Uh, so got more and more into that with sort of mountain biking and then sort of later on road biking and doing a few races and stuff over France and places, which was good fun. Some of them were kind of multi-day events as well. Um, and then got into my sort of 20s, started taking work a bit more seriously and turned fat for a, a little bit. Excellent. Now I'm going to take you back. Yeah. We will come on to all the agility stuff, yeah. but I, I want to try and give people a flavour of you as well as the stuff that you've done. Uh -oh. So, you did your GCSEs at Bedford, yeah. 
then you went to... Actually, I've got to stop here. I should have said Bedford Modern, not Bedford. Big difference. Very big difference. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, so you did your GCSEs there, and then you went to um, Cambridge to do your A-levels. Yeah. Is that where you met Andy Smith? No. You knew Andy from before then? Yeah, so uh, we moved into a, a little village. I sort of got to know Andy. I think we were only about 12 at the time. Um, so we used to play a lot of tennis together. Um, Cambridgeshire County Tennis. Um, as he will openly admit, I used to beat him every single time at tennis. He used to break his heart every every day, every week with that. Um, so yeah, we kind of grew up together, which is obviously how I met you as well all those years back. Yeah, so um, just, just for anyone listening that doesn't know, Andy Smith is a, a mutual friend of mine and Simon's. Um, and Andy is involved, he's a director of a company called IMP, International Marine Products, who have helped us out loads and loads with this project. Um, they've helped us in so many different ways, sourcing kit um, and with their connections in the marine world. So that's, that's why I sort of asked the question about that. So you've moved into Steeple when you're 12, met Andy. Obviously, I was at school with Andy at that time. That's how I got to know you. Yeah. Um, then you went away to do your A-levels at Cambridge. Uh-huh. Yeah, what did you do for your A-levels? Oh, uh, God, English, biology and ancient history. Ancient history? Yeah, like Greeks and stuff. Greeks and stuff. So you passed them. <laughs> fifth, fifth century BC, yeah. I love it. Okay. Um, you did your A-levels. I presume you did reasonably well? No. No? Did you... Is this subtle? Hang on a minute. Hang on. Make sure you get this. Is this something you failed at? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have we found it? <laughs> I, I wasn't... <laughs> I always found school uh, very... Oh, look at that. Schoolboy. Cakes. Cake <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. I was never particularly excited by school. Apart from the sports side of it. And then I kind of cruised through my GCSEs and stuff. And then when it got to A-levels, apparently you've actually got to do some work to do well at A-levels. Yeah. I, nobody told me that. Well, they probably did. But um, So I, yeah, I didn't do great first time round. And then I kind of reset, I think I reset my English. Uh, so yeah, they, they, weren't, they, weren't, they weren't the best. They weren't failures, though. Not failures? No. Don't have failures. We just have learning experiences. We certainly do. Yeah. We, certainly <laughs> do. <laughs> we don't have problems. We have key development areas. Yeah. And that was one of yours at that time, wasn't Definitely. it? Definitely. Definitely okay. show up to school, kids. Yeah. <laughs> so from there, did you go to uni? Yeah, I went off to study psychology down in Portsmouth. Psychology? Yeah. I've always been genuinely you know what? I didn't know that. Did you not? I'm genuinely surprised by that. Yeah. Wow, what led you down that route? I've always been fascinated in... Um, couple of things one sort of like human interaction like uh, body language and all those kind of things and then I was massively into kind of how you could combine what was relatively early on in kind of sports psychology but with what's happening in the business world yeah so that a lot of sort of <coughs> occupational psychology was being used to build high performing teams um, and I was like well why should we not be using some of that in sport and there were people kind of doing it, but it was fairly young. So I was, that was the kind of route I wanted to, to go down. And you was obviously already rowing by that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's the, it's the, like, it sounds to me very much like that, that 
period of the GB rowing team being on a massive up. Um, it kind of came a not dissimilar time to the, the GB cycling team, sort of coming from real amateurish approach to developing into a real elite team. Yeah. And is that where, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing, is that where some of that sort of questioning and some of that interest came from because you were yeah. rowing and you were seeing it around you? or Yeah, definitely. I think <clears throat> partly some of the people that I was training and, and rowing with who were, you know, seasoned internationals or they'd been in the sort of, uh, sort of Oxford, Cambridge crews. Drop names. Ian Watson. Ian Watson. Um, who for those that have never come across Ian he's now um, I think it's Downing if I get it right Downing College um, he sort of coaches them and sort of looks after all the boats there but he was sort of the top GB lightweight for many many years him and sort of Peter Haining and various other people in there so Ian was a bit of a legend he's like like his erg times and stuff were just insane so just being able to sort of train with those guys was mad. And then getting onto some of those training programmes, which we were talking about this earlier, just looking back on them are just crazy. That sort of four or five training sessions a day, it's just it's full-time stuff. I mean, I took some time out after A-levels and was just training full-time. I think I had a job in Next or somewhere to kind of get a few quid. But it was like up at five, a couple of training sessions in the morning, go back, have a sleep couple more sort of in the afternoon go back rest do something a bit more light and fun in the evening like jumping another crew or whatever mess about it was just it was just all consuming it was, it was immense looking back on it now it was pretty amazing stuff to do so, so what was the first club you rode for outside of school yeah um, city of Cambridge or Cambridge City okay and is that where when did you first get picked up as this kid can row and he's likely to be quite good in the future? And who picked you up? Do you know? Can you remember? So the, well, the first stuff would have been at, during schools. So it would have been, I don't know, under 16, under 14, something like that. Because um, some of the coaches we had at, at school um, coached other crews and some of the sort of GB, junior type stuff. So they'd do like regional teams like East of England, etc. that we, we had to sort of compete with. So some of it came from those routes. And then when I kind of moved to Cambridge, coaches spoke to other coaches. Um, not quite sure how I ended up at City, but kind of got adopted by those guys quite quickly. But then some of the training we did <clears throat> were with other clubs. So even within Cambridge, one of the other clubs would have a couple of guys that, or a couple of juniors who were pretty handy so we'd kind of mix crews and boats and go and race. First so when was the first time you, you sort of rode at the GB level and where was that? Ooh. Can you remember? Oh, that's a long time ago. <sighs> Do you know I can't? I, I remember <clears throat> the first kind of um, it was a club event rather than a national event, but the first sort of international event that, that we did, which was just a bit of a, bit of, bit of a laugh. We went off, we represented Cambridge University. Um, for what reason, I, I don't know. Uh, I remember going off and competing there, and there was people like Ian that we mentioned earlier, a couple of the guys from the, 
the blue boat, various other people. Um, so I was going, going this is, this is going to be brilliant. There's like some big guys in this, this boat, little old me. Uh, and it turned out just to be a big piss up. <laughs> Excellent. Where'd you go? Uh, Nantes. That sounds like a lot of sport around yeah. that sort so of there's time. Lo basically. There's loads of people going, oh, the Cambridge University team are turning up. They're going to be like, they're going to win everything. And I think we raced drunk most of the time. So. <laughs> Good experience, though. Yeah, yeah, it was brilliant. Good experience. It was, it was, it was amazing people, yeah. yeah, it was an amazing <laughs> trip. Awesome. So, we're talking, you're, you're probably, how old at that point? Uh, 20. 20. So, you've done your A-levels, you've gone to uni, you're, yeah. you're obviously at uni still at that point. 20-ish um, years old, rowing at a really good level. What happens next? Well, I injured myself, um, tore a load of ligaments, which kind of put me out for what ended up being the best part of two years. Uh, and then the plan was to go join up um, with the under-23 squad, which at the time were based in Nottingham. So I applied to do a master's in Nottingham University. Psychology again? Probably, I can't even remember what it was, but it would have been. Um, and <laughs> I was waiting for them to say, yes, you've got a place. And at the same time, with the the thesis and stuff that I've been doing for my degree, I've been interviewing various HR directors and people for various companies, and one of them turned around and went, um, have you ever been part of an assessment centre? I was like, no, it's only part of my studies, I've not really been sat in one. He was like, oh, well, come along and actually do it as, as if you're applying for a job. And I was like, well, I don't want a job. And he's like, but it doesn't matter, just do it anyway. <laughs> they ended up offering me a job for a crazy amount as a kind of a first job out of university and I was like I don't want to do it I want to go off to Nottingham and then they delayed the offer they delayed the offer and then at just one point this company just went either you're taking it or you know get stuffed kind of thing and I was just like oh, I've not got my why have they taken so long offering me the place kind of bottled it I'll take the job and then about a week or two later they offered you a place they offered my place and uh, just the way my mind works is like I've committed to these people over here so and that was the kind of... Like a sliding doors moment? Yeah. What was the company? Team One to One. Team One to One. I've never heard of them. What they do? Uh, they were an SAP consultancy. They don't exist anymore. They were sold off uh, when I was there. Actually, it must have been... I don't know what year. But so again, for people listening to this, um, there's going to be a lot of people like me mm. that are not particularly techie-minded. Yeah. And when I say not particularly, I mean not at all. SAP. How do I describe this one? Um, <clears throat> so there are various systems that typically big companies use. By big companies, I mean your kind of your big brands, your kind of Adidas's of the world, etc. That handle all their kind of finance, all of their you know how they deal with their orders, all of their supply chain. Basically, the kind of the heartbeat of these big organisations. A couple of routes they can go down. SAP is one of them. It's the sort of name you will never have heard of, but next time you watch Formula One or the big golf events or whatever, they're usually one of the billboards and stuff that they have in, in the background. So they're a huge German company, and I just kind of fell into it. I wasn't particularly techie. I'm still not particularly techie. Um, so what was your role? What did, I'm really curious because you've gone from um, psychology... Yeah to, as a part of your thesis, speaking to HR directors, yeah. who then said, 
come along to an assessment day and do it as a part of the investigation yeah. into your that you're going to use for your thesis. And at the end of it, you obviously nailed the assessment day, and they've gone. Do you know what? We're gonna we're gonna give this fellow a job. So they've then offered you a job in a completely different field. Mm. You've jumped like, and I mean that's proper left field jump from psychology yeah. to. I did ask them in the middle of that. I was like, "What is SAP?" Like you just asked. And they're like, "Don't worry about it. We'll, 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 we'll fill you in. <laughs> yeah, we'll fill you in later." Um, yeah, it was a sneaky move by uh, John Jackson, the, the HR director, to to rope me in. Um, but it, it was completely left field. So, you know, effectively, so I what was, was the actual job? What was the job? I mean, like in in sort of layman's terms, it was once I'd been trained up, it was ultimately to go in as a what is called a functional consultant. So working with these companies to work out their business processes and then how you translate that into the, the technology world so that it's all you know, kind of automated stuff that goes on. So when you say once I was trained up, I'm really, like, I know we're going off a little bit on a tangent here, but I'm really curious how 21-year-old that studied psychology then gets offered a job analysing business processes and yeah. offering experienced multinational companies software and process advice when you've done none of those. So what was what did the training for that look like? How long did I mean like I'm imagining that to be like years of training and No, it wasn't really. No. No, I mean the, the certification program I went through I think it was five weeks. Um being good at blagging helped. <laughs> it usually does. Yeah. It was like one of those, I'm going to do this until someone finds me out. It was one of those, um, just staying one page ahead in the manual. Right. Um, but yeah, so it was a bit of a weird one. And then I kind of, as I was doing that, I worked out there were certain technical aspects that sort of came quite naturally. So I ended up getting involved quite heavily around performance tuning these big global systems. Um, Met a few people along the way who then kind of mentored me and coached me and um, well, taught me. You a few are things. desperately trying to skim over all this. Well, okay. it's only because it's, it's IT stuff, isn't it? It's a bit, bit dull. It is, but it's a big part of you, isn't it? It's a big part I of you. I am dull, thank you. How you, <laughs> how, you, how you are who you are yeah. and how you've ended up realistically in, in the situation you're in yeah. today in life. So, like, you look at this process, you've had. A minimal amount of training, you just by your own admission, blagging bits of it, and then suddenly you look at something that you just is crystal clear to you, and you it just makes sense to you. Is that a, is that a, have I yeah, got that right? No, actually, that's quite a nice way of putting it, because um, that is kind of what happened. And then in, in that particular market that I worked in, people weren't doing that stuff, and then that's where I saw there was a bit of a gap um, because there were lots of companies spending millions, bringing in teams of people which ultimately were filled with people like myself that didn't have the true experience, and the quality of what was going out, being delivered, was kind of really poor. So the gap that I'd seen was, actually, we need to get the quality right. You, like, you, you're saying we need to get the quality right. <clears throat> yeah. Of what? So, so of these, these systems that go in, which are, they are gigantic, and they talk to maybe 100, 200 other systems. So it's a really big spaghetti of you know f for those of you that have you know accounting software that you use you know it's talking to warehouse systems it's talking to this that and the other so it's, it's complex and these companies 
you know, if, if I mentioned that earlier, earlier, if they can't sell shoes for a week, they're in trouble because yeah. that's the life and soul of what, what they do. So the quality aspect of it is you've got these companies putting these huge systems in, spending millions and millions and millions. If it doesn't work, apart from it being expensive, it damages their business. Yeah. So the gap that I had seen at the time was actually there are things that we could do that weren't being done very well around sort of quality and testing and performance tuning, etc. And A, that stuff came naturally to me, and B, people weren't doing it in the market. So at that point, when I was 26, I then started up uh, my company, Experia. Okay. Which involved even more blagging. Yeah. Talk us through starting up a company, doing what you're doing. Experia is the name of the company. Yep. You started it up. You're 26 years old. Um, fearless. Fearless, which naive. is a good way to be. Naive enough to start, stubborn enough to finish. Exactly. One of my favourite phrases, because that is how I think about myself when I do ultras and ocean mows and stuff. Yeah. Naive enough to start, but like just stubborn enough to keep going and try and finish it. Um, interestingly, you, you, you started with that. So... 26 years old, not even enough to start. Did you need a load of money up front? No. We literally started with no money up front. How did you start? Uh, again, sort of concepts. I'd been doing a load of work with um, Cadbury at the time. And that was all kind of going well. And I kind of wanted to start up and ultimately said, right, now's the time, now or never, just crack on. If it fails... You know, didn't I don't even think I owned my flat at that point. So there was kind of no failure was just failure. There was no, it wouldn't really impact anyone. Um, and had a chat with one of the senior guys at Capri, who was kind of the guy that, that our stakeholder in there, and said, "Look, I'm quitting on this date. Um, it's what I'll tell you before my company tells you." And you know, hopefully I'll work with you in the in the future. And he was like, what date do you finish? And we said, I don't know, 27th of August, whatever the date was. And then he went, I guess I'll see you on the Monday. And kind of engaged with us. And then we won another contract shortly after, which is Howden's, who we still work with to this day. Um, well, actually, it was MFI back then, but they're now Howden's. And then it just kind of went from there. So you started proper, low-key, didn't need a load of money out front. Nope. It was like me, a computer, in my lounge, we're on a desk. And a load of people that are foolish enough to believe in me to work along, alongside for a bit. Like, who were they? Name names. Oh, gosh. Um, some of the early people, Tony Wade, who I'd worked with at Team One to One. Um, so did he leave Team One to One at the same time with you? Or did you set up and he then So we've gone our separate ways and then sort of came back together. There's uh, Christian Maloney, who I still work with today. So we, we sold Xperia, what, three years ago um, to another company. Christian and I and a few of the guys still still work. So you set it up when you were 26 and yeah. you only sold it three years ago. Yeah. So like you ran that company for a long... I mean, I, I, I don't want to give away your age because I know you're a bit touchy about that. <laughs> <laughs> But like you know, be <laughs> yeah. So for the best part of sort of, I don't know, was it 14, 15 years you've run yeah. the company? Yeah. Um, 
and you run it from literally a computer in your lounge up to a really successful business, basically. That employ, yeah, how many people did you employ when, when you was at your top, just before you got rid of it or whatever? Um, I don't know, probably at our biggest, we were, I don't know, 150, something like that. Brilliant, okay. Cool. But so we, had, we had lots of ups and downs. It was interesting, your naive but stubborn comment, because it was very much, you know, all these kind of glass, you know, we went through like two or three recessions and... Um, but you know we had we had a really strong culture. We didn't just want to grow a big company for the hell of it. We wanted something that uh, people wanted to be part of, that they could, you know, be trained up, get loads of good experiences. We're always you know, sad to see when people leave, but we're always really excited to see this that we'd been a stepping stone to someone going off and being really successful. It's you know lovely. We have a number of people over the years that would kind of go off for a couple of years and then go. Actually, I kind of miss the culture. So they come back. Um, so we had, we had a really sort of strong internal culture. We wanted to be kind of, we wanted to play with the big boys, you know, play with big brand companies, but not just be a nameless big monster. Monster making loads of money. It was it was more about the people having a laugh, but delivering the best service, the best quality, all this kind of stuff. So like a real serious um, business ethos of. Yeah looking after people, developing people. Um, I mean, you haven't used the word, and I'll throw it out there, maybe it's right, maybe it's not, but almost like a, a kind of family atmosphere. Sort of. It was, I wouldn't say it was necessarily family atmosphere, but it was, um, it was a slightly rebellious atmosphere. Um, it, we, had, we had loads of kind of individuals like nobody seemed to be the same type of person. Really interesting characters. There's you know a few of the guys that still work with us today. You know, one and he's got you know he was a nuclear chemist originally, and it, but he's also he's still a punk. <laughs> I love it. And it's like that, so we had all these kind of crazy, crazy people that just were brilliant at what they did, and all the sort of individualness of everyone was our common common understanding, our common grouping. So it was a I suppose that kind of family atmosphere, but not in the traditional sense. Yeah, it's really interesting to me because obviously I work in an organisation where, like that, they would they would do everything they could to stamp that out yeah. of you. Do you know what I mean? Um, and you're sitting here, really successful guy, going, "Do you know what? That was our strength. That's that's the thing that bonded us all together, and that's what's taken us forward." Yeah. Um, so you run Xperia from. 26 to three years ago, mm-hmm. um, there comes a point where you sell the company. Who do you work for now? So I work for Qualitest now. Yeah. Is that <clears> the <throat> company they bought? Yeah. Experience. Yeah. Okay. Um, they're much, much bigger. They're a global company, purely focused on testing, quality assurance, quality engineering activities. Um, and as, as a group, you know, we, we kind of still exist. Um, so I, I now run a global team which is called Enterprise, which focuses on enterprise applications, which goes back to, because you're looking at me like, what the fuck is he on about? <laughs> <laughs> which goes back to the kind of SAP, Oracle, the, the same sort of system. So we have, a, we have a team that's now much bigger across a number of different countries, basically doing the same kind of stuff that we were doing and... Again, really sort of high quality consulting, so we're very well known for the sort of 
just the quality of people that we put into our engagements, the quality of delivery that we have, and the sort of the results that, that we get. So sometimes we'll get dropped into an account really just to kind of bring the A team and show them what we're capable of and help them to, to grow those kind of deals. Cool. Qualitest. Yeah. Um, obviously, my, my understanding of Qualitest is, is very limited and it's through yourself and it's through their engagement with us. So um, we're jumping about a bit in the conversation, but the names come up, so we need to talk about them. Um, this project has been massive for me and for, for, you know, for us for the last couple of years. And the whole point of it is obviously to try and support these charities. And Qualitest have come in and said, do you know what? We think what you're doing is great and we want to help out and we want to don donate some money to the charities. Um, mate, first of all, I, like I love that. I love that about big companies. We are we've been blessed in this project where we've got two or three big companies that have said we think what you're doing is nuts, but we love it, and like we want the world to be a better place. We want to help these kids out, so we're gonna you know we're gonna help out. And we're gonna give some money to charities. Talk to me about how that came up for you because I presume obviously it it, it just cropped up in a meeting or something at work how what are the first conversations around around you telling them that you're rowing for starters yeah. i'm presuming that's how it came up and what their reaction to to their to, to that was yeah i was I'd, I'd held off talking to them about it for a long time because i wasn't sure what the reaction would be as in oh you know do you mind if i just take a few months off um so i wasn't really sure whether that would be kind of welcomed or frowned upon or, or whatever so I was, I was a little bit nervous talking about it when um, eventually I did um, feel confident enough to give it a go um, the, the reception to it was amazing so I had a, a chat with um, my boss had a chat with our CFO Chris and then ultimately our, our CEO Norm and you know I went into those conversations thinking well this this could be a thanks for working with us, see you later, <laughs> kind of conversation. And it, and it wasn't, they kind of wrapped their arms around it. Again, I, I think they think it's completely nuts, but they've really got behind it. Um, and yeah, like you say, contributing uh, a, a good chunk to the charities, which is amazing. Loads of people are really interested about it. They've you know, done a few social media things. They want to do, do a load more and kind of really support through the whole process, which, um, which is absolutely awesome. Mate, it is awesome. And big business generally um, gets a bashing in the media, hugely. Um, all the time I see stuff in the media about fat cats and this, this kind of terminology that's used around you know, big business in general. And my experience over the last 10 years of doing these ultra challenges and doing all this stuff for charity is that every single time, without foul, it's big business that have come to our aid and got us over the line and you know for, for, for no reason other than to go do you know what that's just nuts we love it yeah. you know support we'll support you we'll help we'll you know we'll make sure this charity gets what they're after um, and it's a really it's a really strange kind of sorry that was a big lorry going past it's a really strange kind of uh, disconnect from what you read in the media to what I've experienced certainly in the last decade um and about the attitudes of big business, about people that run big businesses. Um, coming back to you when, you when you set your company up, you did it with a, 
a very particular ethos in mind, and I'm guessing you wouldn't be working for Qualitest if they didn't have a similar kind of ethos and attitude. Yeah, to it's, it's a funny one actually. I might have to be careful what I say here, but um, <laughs> we can always edit this. Yeah. Out. <laughs> um, yeah, when we sold, there was that element of you know I, I needed to stick around for a few years, um, hit certain results to maximise the value of the sale and those kind of things. And in my mind, was kind of like, well, you know, we'll. we'll We'll see out that stretch of time, and then it's probably time for a new challenge. And obviously, working for other people and new bosses, and you know the dynamics are going to change. Several people saying, "Could you actually work for someone?" Because you don't look like the sort of person that's very good for <laughs> taking orders. Um, it's not that you don't look like the sort of person that's very good at taking orders. You're really not. <laughs> <are you? laughs> Let's be honest. Oh, yeah. um, so, I generally thought I would. You know, work my hardest for them for a short period of time and then uh, hit the next challenge. But I, I genuinely have um, loved my time working there. I can see so much potential and behind some of the, They've got some pretty crazy objectives, and if Norm listens to this, he knows exactly what I'm talking about. And that's exactly why I enjoy working there because they've got these. Well, you can't do that. What? Okay, because what you've just done is you've had a private joke with someone or a private thing with someone on a podcast. So I'm going to call you on it. Who's Norm? What's the objective? Tell us uh, about Norm's it. Norm's our CEO. And it's, it's to do with the growth goals of, of Qualitest. And when he set out those goals, they were insane and unachievable. And I remember he, he asked me about them. Um, and... and and then what I said, what I kind of responded to him, which is, they are so crazy. I, I'm, I love them. That's, let's go and do stuff that people don't think are possible. And that, I guess, sums me up a little bit. I love doing things that people go, you can't do that. It's like, yes, you can. And if you just care to sit back and watch, I'll show you. Okay, so that brings us full circle, yeah. straight back round to ocean rowing. Mm. I mean, that, that, like, that comment of, I love being able to just say to people... They're saying that's not possible, and I say, well, pull up a chair, get yourself a nice cup of tea, mm -hmm. and watch this. <laughs> the ocean rowing. Obviously, I knew from long ago, from conversations I had with you years ago, probably with us both slightly inebriated somewhere in a bar, that you wanted to row an ocean. Yeah. Um, when I started putting a project together, I was trying basically trying to, to, to put together the perfect team and your name's kicking around in the back of my head and I'm like Simon Rose Simon wants to row an ocean Simon is exactly the sort of character that I want on the boat yeah for everyone else just just run through very quickly like your decision making about because it's all well and good for me saying Do, you know would you like to row an ocean it's an entirely another thing to to row an ocean <laughs> Um, especially when, you know, for someone like you, that's you know, you're a successful guy and you're, you're you're sort of quite high up in a company and stuff. It's not like it is for some people where there's there's less to lose, shall we say? Mm. Um, so talk us through that. Uh, I, it's it's something that I've always wanted to do since I, c I don't even know when, like twenty years ago. I think I kind of. I must have seen something, or maybe it was when the, they first started doing some of the Atlantic racing. I was just like, I want to. I, I feel like I need to do something like that. Um, and it's just always sat there in, 
and festered and like say we had a chat about it years and years ago but partly to do with the exterior thing and kind of what time was never it was never the right time to kind of do it um so then when you when you kind of called and suggested it it was kind of like here is something that i've always wanted to do a little bit scared to do it it's completely insane let's do it it's like if you're going to do it just do it excellent so um we haven't spoken at all actually yet about your family your wife etc um so just a quick bit about your, your your current situation, your family, your wife, uh, when you met your wife, etc. Just give people a, like an overview of, because you've been together for quite a long time, haven't you? We have. It's a really oh, love story. Tell <laughs> <laughs> you know a love story, we son. We went to school together. <laughs> so you went to when you went to when you say you went to school together, like literally from like 12, 13 years no, old. So A levels, we we met, and was the year below at Hills Road. Um, but yeah, so we met, we met at school. Um, <clears throat> then we first got together on Em's 18th birthday. Um, not necessarily seriously, but that was kind of the first time we kind of we, we hooked up. And then yeah, it, kind of, it just went went from there. We went to different universities, but we managed to see out that time. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously Em fell in love with me straight away. When she first saw me. Listen. It's understandable. She's not made of wood, is she? Those <laughs> eyes are not painted on. <laughs> so, um, 18, you met when you were 18 years old and you're still together today. Yes. And how long have you been married? <laughs> oh, don't do that. <laughs> um, is that a bus? I've just thrown you under. <laughs> what year is it? When did we get married? Ballpark. Five, 16, is it we come up? To, oh, have I got this wrong? Really sorry, Emma, if I get this wrong. I think we're coming up to 16 years married. Wow. This is my daughter. My phone is actually on mute. But whenever my daughter's it's a, it's a called... Cake, it's a cake phone, man. They, doesn't, uh, it doesn't matter. It rings. Um, 16 years-ish married. Yeah, 2005 I got married. Is that 16 years? That's going to be 16 years. April. April the 9th. You're the successful that. businessman. You can't work <laughs> We got engaged. I'll tell, I tell you this. This is nice. When we got engaged, we got engaged just as England won the World Cup, the proper World Cup, the Rugby World Cup. Awesome. Um, so as was that, that a direct result of England winning the World Cup? No, it was. <laughs> and you had a few beers. We, we you got made, a bit carried away. Yeah, because it was like a 7 a.m. kickoff. And we were in the walkabout, Covent Garden, very classy establishment. <sighs> You watched it in the walkabout? Yeah, yeah. I love that. Exactly. I mean, what a place to against, watch it. Against the Aussies. The place had about an inch of beer on the floor by the end <laughs> of the game. That kick went over to win the World Cup. Um, and, I, you know, sober as a judge. Obviously. I then turned to him and said, would you marry me? And like an idiot. She was clearly very drunk. Yes. Like <laughs> an she idiot. said she yes. Said yes. <laughs> uh, but then to be fair to her, she then um, went, I'll tell you what, I'll give you... An hour or something. Go and have a think about what you just said. That's a very Emily thing. It is, isn't to it? Do it very sensible. Way. So, um, but it, you know, we we stuck. She sobered up and thought it was still a good idea. And yeah. And now, children. Two girls. Uh, Names, ages. Yeah, Mia, the eldest. Uh, she is thirteen. Lily is eleven. 
I'm not good with dates. I'm really not good with dates. <laughs> you're a man, of course you're not good with dates. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're, they're awesome. So yeah, two girls, now nearly two teenagers, which is frightening. Yeah, that is. I know you can empathise with this. I definitely can, yeah, absolutely. So that's kind of like family, that's work. Um, one of the things that I think has come across during the conversation is um, you're like a really, you've got a really positive attitude towards stuff and you love the idea of just doing stuff that people tell you you can't, full stop. 100%. It can't be done. Um, obviously, we've alluded to the fact that I found you and spoke to you in relation to doing the row. Talk to me about the ocean row, like the, the whole kind of global thinking around it of, you know, I'm a man in my 40s with a wife and two kids and as much as I love massive challenges and doing stupid stuff, um, there's obviously big risk involved and um, for you that's professionally Mm-hmm. And personally, you know, um, and obviously a bit of health and safety involved as well. <laughs> tiny bit. Just a tiny bit. Just give me a flavour of your thinking about the whole thing. All of it. Just like <clears throat> there's there's a little bit of selfishness, I suppose, isn't it? Because it's it's a personal goal, ambition, and there is risk, <clears throat> like you say, that impacts many other people. If if something was to to go wrong so I can't hide away from from that aspect of it um, but it's, I don't know it's just you know everyone's behind it they, they have to be for it to be to work as a as a family etc um, certainly with all the sort of the training that goes on let alone actually the event itself um, obviously with covid and you know even travel plans are all up in the air I don't I don't know what conversations you've had but it's like you know, Emma and I have been talking, she's like, well, maybe we won't even be able to be with you when you get to Hawaii. Have you, yeah. have you thought about that? You know, Which you know, would be absolutely gutting if, if that scenario played out. Um, but as, I mean, as far as the actual road goes, I just, I don't know. I just think it's, it's going to be an amazing time. I'm really looking forward to um, night time, weirdly. I love the stars. And just being out in the middle of nowhere, literally, there are, it's probably the best place on earth to sit and stare at the stars. I promise you I'll be rowing as well. <laughs> yeah, um, that would be useful yeah. if you'd be so kind as to do yeah. some of that. I'm just going to be a long, long crossing. <laughs> but, so there's, there's that aspect of it. There's the, there's the kind of the, the solitude, although there's four of us, that whole, you know, quite a lonely place and, and a big tough mental challenge to get through um, so I'm looking forward to that weirdly I'm looking forward to um, breaking as well seeing where those breaking points are and I know from talking to you you guys and your ultra events and stuff you know the one thing that is certain is everyone's going to break uh, probably more than once and weirdly that's quite a calming feeling because it's not because you guys have done all your ultra stuff before, um, and I've never done anything quite so extreme, there was kind of part of my mind that was like, oh, you know, how do I, how do I, perform at the same kind of level you guys have, have done this sort of stuff before? And then I can't remember whether it was you or Aaron said, you know, 
we're going to break, we're all going to break. Suddenly it's like, well, actually, I don't have to put on any kind of macho front. It's like, just get on with it. It's going to happen. Yep. Deal with it. There will be tears. So don't worry about yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that, uh, weirdly, that's quite a liberating feeling as well. So. Yeah. Yeah, massively. So you say you haven't, I mean, like you've alluded to some of the older stuff that me and Aaron and, and, and in fact, Darren have done. Um, but you have done... Obviously, you've, you've you've competed in sport at a, a quite a high level with the rowing. I say quite a high level at the you know the highest level, um, but you have actually done some endurance stuff as well, haven't you? Yeah. Um, so with the with the cycling sort of multi day events uh, and things, and obviously they there you're kind of riding all day, and some of the ones that we did, which are the sort of mountain biking ones, uh, you know, you'd ride all day. You had to carry all your kit. You'd set up camp. You know. You ate whatever you could carry. You'd fill your water bottles up from streams. Um, put myself in hospital a couple of times doing that kind of stuff. Excellent. Tell us about that. Oh, just because just <laughs> I'm an idiot. I, it's, um, cycling, uh, I used to love climbing. Um, and certainly mountain biking. I used to love climbing. I was never very good at going downhill. As most people do mountain biking because they want to go fast downhill. Yeah. I can go fast downhill. I just tend to come off a lot. <laughs> um, so... I've, I mean, I've, I've knocked down trees in the past. I seem to remember years ago. Didn't you break your elbow? Yeah, well, I kind of gouged. I had a big gash. I was doing one of those endurance events, actually. I fell off at speed, cut my arm, elbow really badly. And that was on day one of the event. Finished the event. And I remember I wasn't even going back home. I had to go back to a customer in Manchester. So I was like, I got back to this hotel. I was tired, knackered sat in this bath just like covered in mud and I was there trying to clean out this cut and as I'm cleaning away I'm like oh there's like mud like deep in there so I'm having to clean inside this wound going this is actually getting a bit gross now I think I need to uh, maybe take myself down to the local area and then when I got down there they were just like what the hell have you done well I was just you know big hole in your arm exactly <laughs> yeah I think you might need just a few stitches here um, so yeah, I've done that. Yeah, knocked over trees. I said, fallen off a mountain. You know. Awesome. So, you've done plenty. You know, you've done mm. a fair amount of endurance and stuff. There's one thing I just, I just want to very quickly pick up on. You said one of the things that you're looking forward to on the road mm. is a solitude. Yeah. And accepting, obviously, there'll be four of us there. But you know, for for people listening to this, you row in twelve hours a day, and you know, there's a, there's only so much that you can talk to someone. So there's going to be long periods of kind of silence, basically. And one of the things that I know about you and that I find really interesting is that you're good at silence, aren't you? <laughs> I love, I love silence. Anyone that's driven with me any distance, I can drive across Europe barely saying a word, um, as, as my family will testify to. Um, I don't feel the need to talk necessarily unless there's something to talk about. I love talking. I love all that. It's not like I'm just completely miserable, but... Um, yeah, I don't know, there's something just very calming there. And there's also that bit of, you know, just get your head down, just kind of plod away, whether you're driving or rowing or Whatever. doing anything. And just have a chat with yourself. Maybe I'm half crazy. Mate, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's just an unusual characteristic, I think, these days in particular. Someone that is um, really comfortable and really good at silence. It just doesn't, it, you know, it, it, it's unusual. And that's why I asked the question. And you are genuinely good like you're, you're really happy aren't you if, if when we're rowing if we're rowing for three hours 
and I didn't say a word to you for two hours, you wouldn't even notice that I hadn't spoken to you. Yeah, I probably wouldn't actually. And it, but then at the same time, certainly like with work and things, I do quite like being the centre of attention. So if I'm, you know, I can play the clown quite, quite happily. But I also don't necessarily feel the need to just do that all the time. So I kind of flip between one or the other. But yeah, just cracking on with stuff. It's great. Awesome. So, Ocean Marion, we're happy with who you are, mm. where you come from, the school you went to, the university, your love story. Aww. Um, Emily's a really interesting part of this, actually, because um, she basically, this is from an outsider looking in, she's basically the grown-up, isn't she? there's no doubt about that she, she is the grown up that allows you to be you yeah. in, in almost every aspect of your life mm -hmm. and um, I'm curious about how she feels about you doing it because from an outsider looking in you know as I said she she's that kind of calming influence that stability that someone like you needs would that be fair to say no it's 100 because whilst i can be quiet um i'm very very competitive always have been obviously and uh she'd always be the person who should bring my feet back down to the ground um and and be exactly that kind of calming influence so you know in terms of what does she think of all this um I think there's there's an element of if I don't do this, there'll be a chunk of me that's not happy. So she wants me to fulfil that kind of that dream, if you like, and therefore she'll support and do do what it takes to to help me get there. Which is amazing that someone's prepared to do that, and you know, even just then looking after the kids, getting on with life whilst we're away is kind of one thing, but even well, you know what it's like in terms of the hours worth of training. Life still goes on. Stuff still needs to happen around the house. You know, bills and all that stuff. Reality needs to needs to happen. And she kind of takes care of all that. So she is 100% the adult in the she, relationship. She is the grown-up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she is the stability that's required. But, I mean, in, in any relationship, you need, you know, people to, to perform different roles effectively, don't you? Mm. And, you know... You're very much a, okay, I'm going to prove that this can be done kind of guy. And once you flip that switch, I'm going to prove this can be done, someone has still got to do all of the other stuff. Because yeah. you're now focused on this one thing. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going quite to obsessive about stuff as well. So then it's like, even if I was trying to do some of the other stuff, I'd be the rubbish. I'd just forget about stuff. Whereas it's just very systematic and brilliant at doing all those other things and, and that focus that you talk about and that kind of the way you get drawn into one thing which has led you to be really successful in life it's, it's interesting that it's almost like I was so surprised when you said what you did at uni because I, I genuinely didn't know that and I was like yeah. it was a bit of a shock to me because I was like you're the, the, the way you are and your focus and the detail that you look at stuff in. You know, psychology is soft science, basically, isn't it? You know, are we going to call it a science? Is that fair? <laughs> are we going there? <laughs> I 
I'm sorry. <laughs> but you, you know what I'm getting at in terms yeah. of, you know, it's woolly. Let's just go there, right? It's woolly. And what you do for a living is hard data driven. Yes and no, uh, to, to both those comments. So, yeah, you can look at psychology as woolly, but actually it's, it's not. A lot of what we had to study is trying to pick through the wool, if you like, and putting data and rationale behind it to say, actually, we can spot these trends and patterns that means we can understand how people react to certain situations or, you know, you know that the how you can tell when someone's lying, which is always a bit of a laugh because it's actually really hard and typically police people think they're really good at it when statistically it shows they're rubbish. I'm not picking on the police, but it, it's just distinct. You might as well everyone else does. Some of those studies. You know, and actually, a lot of what I do with the companies that, that I work with or my teams work with, we're picking through lots of data, looking for patterns to spot where failure will occur or the root cause of why failure happens. So it's actually, weirdly, really well suited. It's weirdly on track. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I do love data. I'm a bit obsessed with data and stats. But yeah, I mean, we came to that with, with my comments about, you know, the way you focus on things. Yeah. And, and you've always seemed to me to be the sort of guy that can only really focus on one thing. Yeah. But once you focus on it, you're likely to be great at it. But it's got to be like one thing at a time, which is also the kind of comment I was making about, you know, Emily in the background of this, mm. is she allows you to go and be great at stuff yeah. because she picks up all of the other shit that you should be doing and managing and, and kind of, you know... <coughs> Maybe. <laughs> I yeah, I don't want to throw you under the bus yeah. too much, but... <laughs> but that, but, you know, that, to me, always seemed to be yeah, the way. Yeah, uh, 100%. 100%. I'm very lucky. And so when you talk about, you, just flipping back again to, you mentioned in psychology, you said that, you know, you studied it, and the thing you loved about it is that you could look at, about why people are making decisions and about reoccurring patterns and all that kind of stuff. Have you ever spent any time genuinely sitting down and trying to turn that inward and have a look at you? Yeah, Before, have you? Yeah, yeah, loads and loads and loads. It's frightening. Really, it's a frightening place. Like, I'm, I'm genuinely really interested in this, um, and I'm interested in. This is about you, not about me. So I'm not. Like, <laughs> <laughs> just hoping to throw that out there really cool. yeah. <laughs> I don't want you starting to tell people my uh, secrets. <laughs> but like, when you did that, and is that, is that something that you do systematically on purpose and continue to do, or, or did you? Did you sit down and say, right, I'm going to have a good look at me? And if you did, what came out of that? I think it's, it's happened a few times. Over my, you know, it started probably with trying to work out who I was and who was the real me. Um, you know, why did I do certain things? Why did I behave in certain ways? What was it that kind of drove me? Um, which I think is important. You've got to understand how... You, how you interact with people, how you can influence people positively or negatively. Um, so I was always kind of fascinated by that and fascinated how I could understand myself better to maximise performance. And that was whether it was from a business context or even in, 
in a sporting context, you know, where are my weaknesses? Is is my weakness psychological? You know, what's my pain threshold? You know, do I have a high pain f- threshold, or do I just think I have a high pain threshold and actually I don't? You know, what pain do you feel? Maybe you can handle stuff more. So there was always that kind of introspective viewpoint, and I kind of used to do that periodically. Probably haven't done it that much in recent years, which is possibly what I'll be doing. On the, on, the, on the boat, yeah. Okay, so one one thing I'm interested about that is, you said about how, you know, how to influence people. Yeah. Um, is there a is there a massive difference in the approach you take to that in your professional and your personal life? No, I don't think so. I love seeing people be successful, and by success, I don't necessarily mean going off and doing something big and amazing. It can be small little things um, I get a real kick out of that and if you can help guide someone even if it's just you know you just happen to say a couple of words and it sticks in their mind and it just helps them get their head around something I, I just get I've always got a huge buzz of, of seeing other people succeed um, so even you know part of this you know as, as we as we're going across you know trying to help everyone kind of Get across. I don't know what I can offer yet, but being able to, to influence the way people behave or get through certain challenges is, is what life, life is about for me. I agree, mate, 100%. Like, and it's one of the things that is important for me to, for me to have in people around me, if that makes sense, is yeah. that, that kind of like enjoying other people's success and enjoying seeing people develop and, and all that kind of stuff. It's a four-man team. You obviously know me yeah. reasonably well. That's some of my secrets. Yeah. Not too many that I'm that scared. <laughs> um, you're getting to know Aaron. Yeah. But in reality, don't know him that well at the moment. Yeah. And probably the same with Darren B. Yeah, probably he's spoken with Darren B more... Just because like we went off on the training course together, and do you know, I've, I've, it's a question people have asked me. Like, oh, how old do you know the crew? And I'm like, well, to be honest, not really that well. Certainly, Aaron and Darren B. You know, I could probably count on one hand the number of times we've actually physically met. Um, but I actually quite like that aspect of it. So some people go, "Wow, is that not like a bit weird?" I'm like, oh, "No, not really," because we've got quite a lot of time in a very small space to get to know each other and actually that's part of what will make it a little bit more interesting I think maybe it's harder to understand the dynamics of a, a crew if you all know each other really really well Yeah. because you already have your pre preconceptions around how they're going to behave under stre- in stress situations that you may not necessarily have seen them in before so actually you're you're thinking about how they're going to react on stuff could be way off the mark, but that will influence possibly negatively, you know, that that relationship. Whereas if you're starting with a blank canvas, safe in the knowledge that you know you've done stuff with both of them, you trust them implicitly. Why? So well, no. What a perfect place to start from. What's your? I thought long and hard, long and long and long and hard when. Um, when, when we were putting all this together about the characters mm. and um, about the people on the boat, not just from a physical performance point of view, um, but also from a point of view of 
um, who they are, you know, and, and like on, on a real kind of sort of deeper level, who they actually are. Mm. Um, and I obviously had a massive influence in the four of us all becoming a crew eventually. Yeah. I'm curious what you think so far. You can be, listen, this is a podcast. People want to be entertained. Be <laughs> no one will know. It's just between you and me. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting because, again, there's four very different characters, I think. Um, even when you just look at, you know, kind of background and what we do for a living, um, obviously there's you and Aaron from a police background. Obviously, DB's got, you know, part of his life with the police as well um, but with his kind of finance background and whatever he's much more just just to clarify that for people listening yeah. that Darren's married um, to a quite successful police officer um, from the southwest so that kind of just, just as an, just as <laughs> just as an explanation so that's that's Darren Baker's kind of link to the police yeah anyway, so I've interrupted um, but obviously his sort of backgrounds in, in the business world as well. So actually, as we've gone through the challenge of even just the sort of planning of all this stuff, the way he thinks and the way I think is quite similar. And obviously the way you and Aaron work are very similar as well. So just having those perspectives, quite interesting. Um, obviously the three of you are a bunch of nutters with your ultra-endurance events and stuff before, so that's, that's a bit of a given. Um, so I just I just think it'll be it'll be fascinating. It'll be fascinating to see how those relationships develop over that time period, and some of that will be influenced by who you're rowing with and you know who's going through what stress at the time. But yeah, four different characters I think, and I, again I think that's something that I like. If it was kind of the three of you are very similar, it'd be very easy for me to then feel like the outsider. But it's, but it's not. So yeah. Awesome. The difference between. The two people in the business world yeah. and the two people in the police world. Yeah. Like, uh, um, I obviously see it from the police side and um, I consider myself to be the kind of person that is reasonably self-aware. So mm -hmm. don't worry. You're not going to insult me <laughs> when, you say, when you say... But the, the, the main difference is, what, what do you feel they are? I don't know. I don't know how you can explain it. Simply, it's probably stuff like a lot of the stuff. Certainly, in in my world, and I think it's similar for DB, is there's a lot of kind of there's there's a lot of plates that are spinning. So there's lots of problems that need solving um, independently. So there's lots of plans, and you're kind of working in a lot of things in parallel. But they kind of there won't necessarily be immediate solutions to them. So the things that you'll just be chipping off over a period of time, but you kind of know where you are with them because you've, you've got it all kind of planned out and there's people doing stuff. Whereas I think the, the feeling I get um, with your world is problem, solve it. Another problem, solve it. It's like, we've got to do it now. Everything's kind of now. And it's like, actually, you know, there's a number of things that we can plan out for like two or three months and sort of chip away... Mate, I, I yeah. massively agree with you. Yeah. Hugely agree with you. I really do. And, you know, it's something that I'm aware enough of it to be able to kind of try and... But you need it. Uh, to, to try and manage it in, in, yeah. in, a, 
in, in, in a certain way and in, in order to manage it within the team as well, you know, because like you say, we are, um, we spend years and years and years in the jobs we're in and yeah. our job is to deal with what's in front of us and, and resolve the problems, yeah, solve exactly. the problems. But, but you need both sides of it. Anyway, you know, there's not one side is better than the other. It's all so long-term strategy stuff. Yeah. Um, obviously, you guys are much better at. I, th I don't think there's any question in relation to that. You know, which is why we're rubbish police officers, <laughs> <laughs> and you guys are really successful. <laughs> um, but you know, it's it's a really interesting dynamic, and um, it's interesting for me as well to try and manage that from my side of it, um, because I'm, I'm fighting twenty years of my life. You know, I'm fighting that kind of we need to resolve this now <laughs> and um, it's interesting when you lay other layers of life over the top of it yeah. and especially like over the last couple of months for, uh, for Aaron in particular he's been you know he's moved house he's got a really young baby work is enormously demanding and you know he's got his responsibilities within the team and he's desperately trying to get those resolved in, and in some ways, in an almost a little bit of selfish way sometimes, because he needs it to be resolved so that yeah. he can kind of move on. And then, like, a couple of hundred miles away, I've got you, who's like, nah, I'll, I'll be, be fine. fine. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, I don't like, have an element of kind of like, it'll be fine, it'll, stuff will get sorted. I remember. If you book them, they will come. If you, <laughs> if you build it, they will come. So, like, I remember um, when we were having dinner down at um, the Fox. Yeah. And Emily came and sat on our on, on the table that I, I was with, and, and you went over to the other table, and we were obviously all moving around and chatting and stuff. And she, one of the things she said really stuck with me. She said, Simon is a global thinker, but he will never get anything done. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, even though I'd had a couple of beers at that point, it kind of went in and sat there. And, and it's been really interesting over the last three, four months, whatever it is, um, that, that that comment kind of kicking around in, in the back of my head. And it's like, it's not that you'll never get anything done because, frankly, obviously you get a lot more done than 99.999% than of the world. Mm. But on a much bigger scale <laughs> is probably the, a better way of putting it. Um, and so, like, when, we're, when you know, we've got small things that need resolving... And you're like, it's okay, don't worry about it. It's just it's a small thing like that. It's one tiny little plate I've got in that corner of my head spinning away. Yeah. But I've got all of these other bigger plates that I'm worrying about. Um, it's been a really interesting thing for me. That view of, you know, the immediacy that the, the, the kind of police. Yeah. Also versus almost, don't sweat the small stuff. Yeah. Almost drills into you. Yeah. Versus, you know, a lot of the, we, this is the the first of the kind of the team get to know you, so obviously we've, we've done Justin, but DB is, you know, very much that way, isn't he? And, and he, like yourself, he, he lives in a world where it's serious top-end finance and, you know, very high-level professionals that he deals with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and I, I, I noticed it previously when we, when, when we was on our way out to, 
to sorting out going out to Peru with Darren, you know, that that kind of difference in, mm-hmm. in, in the in the view of it, if you like. Um, and the more I thought about it, I just think it's it's basically just, you know, the magnification that you look at the world through. You know, ours tends to be quite a high magnification we're looking at it. Now and you guys sit back and look at it from a bit further yeah. away and the, and the bits around it. Um, so getting back on track with the team um, I love the fact that Darren bridges both worlds you know um, and that obviously everyone does everyone brings something totally different to the mm-hmm. team in, in every respect um, what's your key what is it you're bringing oh crikey Expecting that, was you? I wasn't expecting that one. What am I bringing? Well, I don't see. I mean, this is one where I could be like, oh, because you guys have done these things before. What can I bring? Like, the um, one thing that we desperately want through these um, little podcasts and these get to know you, get you get to know you sessions, is for people just to be honest. You know, like I'm not remotely interested in you saying, like what you should say. Do you know what I mean? About <laughs> not about you. Yeah. Uh, the idea of that from you actually is nonsense. But yeah. you know, you know what I'm getting at in terms of just just be honest. What? what? Yeah, I. D- I think um, maybe a bit of stubbornness. Actually, of just we've got to get a job done. It's going to take a long time. Crack on. Type of thing. You know. I'm, I always want to be making sure I'm contributing physically when I do stuff like this. So that's the kind of one thing I want to be able to sort of contribute that I've, I've kind of more than pulled my weight into it. Um, Have you got a way, like, uh, for someone like you that analyses things mm. and analyses things so successfully, have you got a way that you're going to analyse that, your input physically? and whether it's up to your personal standard of whatever it is that you've got in your head. I think, I think it possibly won't ever be up to the standard that I'll have in my head, because nothing ever, nothing ever is. Um, but yeah, I, you know, part of me is kind of like, oh, I'm already thinking, you know, what, what stats can I get hold of whilst we're out there? Like, whilst we're on the boat, I want... And what's the answer? What have you, where, where have you gone with it? Well, I, I, don't, I haven't really concluded it, but it's kind of like, you know, I want more than just my heart rate stats. I want to know, you know, how fast is the boat moving in different conditions with, you know, different combinations of us rowing, you know, which can, will, will influence it and how we're feeling. Um, and just, just, I'm jumping in and I apologise because yeah. I probably shouldn't be doing that, but are you after those stats beforehand so that you can affect it? Or are you after those stats during it so that you can reflect on it beforehand so we can influence it and during it so we can also influence it right and also it's just because my my brain will be wanting to process stuff so if if i'm going to go slightly insane it will kind of need something to to focus in on and that's something that'll be kind of is, is good for my head to be kind of looking at even if we don't actually do anything with it but it's yeah. kind of making sense out of the the matrix okay so 
got a Garmin on your wrist? I do. Is a lot of your personal stats going to come through that? Uh, well, that's kind of uh, what I've been thinking about. Uh, some, some of it will, um, but I'm also thinking, you know, what else can we be using? Um, you know, s simple things like stroke rates and, you know, water speed, all, all that kind of stuff. All that kind of data. Which I don't really know. So part of us, you know, finally getting out on the boat today, awesome. Um, is to well, well, <laughs> yeah. so you're awesome. <laughs> Um, we'll come on to that. Yeah. It, so you know, we didn't really get the time to kind of look at it. It was kind of like see what, see what information the boat can give us already, or you know, the sort of things that we used to have. And again, it was back in the day, and it was kind of early days of the sort of little computers that you'd have on, on the boats then. But you know, you'd it would pick up stroke rate, like I just said. But you'd have something under the boat that would tell you kind of water speed and things. So. It was just like just lots of stuff you could you could look at. Okay, the thing that you want under the boat that picks up water speed. Yeah, I've got some. Well, I've got good news and bad news. What would you like first? Uh, bad news. Well, the good news is <laughs> <laughs> there's only one bit of bad news, yeah. and the bad news is we don't have that. That's not currently on our boat. But if that's something that's important to you and that you'd like, then it, you know, like. Today, us sitting down and having this conversation is yeah. going to be a good thing because it's something that we could look into getting. I'd be dead easy. We, yeah, yeah, relatively easy and not massively expensive. So if it's important to you and it's something that you would like, then that's, that's like when we turn this off, that's a conversation yeah, that we need to have and I'll try and resolve that for you. Yeah, definitely have a look at that. Cool, okay. Um... I can't remember where I was now. I got distracted. So, um, yeah, data, data collection, you and the row. Yeah. The influence in it's the big part for you, um, I get. Yeah, and I, you know, um, even even today, you know, just starting to talk about technique and how can we make the boat go that little bit quicker. Which And it's all the marginal gain stuff. It's not... The aggregation of marginal gain. Yeah. Dave Wales, <laughs> um, But all that stuff is, is brilliant, isn't it? and was very, very successful. But, you know, if we can all just row that little bit better, that 2% better here, 2% there, 1% over there, it will make a huge difference. Over that duration of time, a 1% performance increase, I haven't done the calculation, maybe I should have done, but is, you're talking hours, hours on our time. Potentially days. Exactly. And I'll, I'll, I'll probably polish this off with just going into this last little bit now you've brought that up mm. the world record for the crossing mm -hmm. is something like 38 days 9 hours and 39 8 hours I think yeah I thought you might know it <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. but yeah how important is that record to you so in my head all the way through it's getting across is the number one thing in my head just being able to achieve it and the world record is secondary but if I am being honest from my heart of hearts 
That is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you said that because if you'd got to the end of that sentence without adding that, I was going to say bullshit. <laughs> um, so it, it doesn't preoccupy my thoughts because there's just so many things that so many things have to go right. You know, weather conditions, like Mother Nature, is the biggest influence, right? So if things are even remotely against us, you can kind of kiss it goodbye. So it's not kind of like we must break the world record. But I, I would be lying if it wasn't, you know, when we get across, I want it to be, well, we joked earlier today, you said something about 38 days, and I was like, I'm not spending more than 37 <laughs> days on the boat. Yeah, yeah, uh, mate, it's, 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 it's something I'm looking forward to speaking to everyone about, mm. like, and getting the individual opinions on it, because, you know, very early on in this project, we spoke about the, the, you know, the crossing, the reason for doing that crossing as opposed to the Atlantic, and then also about that record. Yeah. And knowing you as I do, I, 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 I can't imagine that you haven't thought a lot about that record and about. So, so let me ask, why is it important to you? You are like a really successful guy. Okay, you. You've got, you got a great family, you've got a lovely home, you're successful in your business, in your chosen field. Um, you're going off to have this amazing adventure and do an ocean row. And I get the impression, and I might be wrong, but your the way your focus goes in onto things, that that record is going to be really important. But I want to understand why. Because it's there. It's, uh, I guess it's part of the kind of it's a crazy thing. Like, go row the Pacific, that's a crazy idea. Go beat a world record. Fuck it up. You can't do that. You can't do that. How can you do that? So th there's, there's that aspect. But there is an element, it's, it's there. There's a, there is a record there. What's the point in doing it if you're not trying to beat it? Yeah. It's not, it's not a Sunday stroll, is it? No. Um, if you're going to do something properly, do it properly. Focus on it beat whatever the obstacle is that's that's there. But, like I said, I'm, I'm also a little bit relaxed about it because there's so much of it that's out of our control. Normally, you'd kind of look at something like this. You know, if you're preparing for a race, the majority of things are in your control. Yeah. In this scenario, there's lots of things that are in our control, but Mother Nature, over that period of time, is really the one who is in control. So there is that part of me that's like, absolutely 100% want it and I'd be gutted if we don't do it but I can't, I can't influence the biggest thing yeah. out there yeah absolutely okay um, I don't know how long we've been talking for Josh how long have we talking for bud about an hour 20 about an hour and 20 minutes yeah it flies by doesn't it it has <laughs> absolutely flown by now, you got any questions for Sai no like, I think we've ticked on everything I think um, the one thing that I came that I just kind of picked up was when talking about the what you bring and to the team and I think going back earlier to the conversation you mentioned that obviously everyone's different mm. and then coming back to the conversation I think that like from your early life of experience talking about that rebellious culture see all four of you have to be quite rebellious to go and do something as stupid as row an ocean <laughs> and be together for 38 days 
and I feel as though you'll just fit in perfectly because you've been in that rebellious culture and uh, and like in essence led that rebellious culture as well so like I think you bring that to the team massively in terms of being comfortable with different individuals yeah and I think that was just the one thing that kind of picked out to me that that I think could kind of bring bring some kind of unity to it and kind of bring some um what's the word just peace of mind to the to the team as well from that perspective mm. um, and yeah so I'm not sure what you think about that but <laughs> uh, yeah, I, yeah I hope so I've not really thought about it in that way but um I had <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I I, 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 hope, I hope I can I'm, I'm quite comfortable living with uncertainty as well so um, in a sort of ever-changing, maybe slightly chaotic, slightly out of control environment where things change that are beyond your control. <coughs> Sorry. I'm, I'm quite comfortable kind of dealing with I actually quite like those situations where a lot of people, you know, in a work context, a lot of people may be getting quite stressed out by it because they can't control everything. Things are kind of going a bit mad and... and those are the scenarios where I kind of feel like I wake up a little bit and kind of like, all right, this is what we need to do to kind of solve it, pull people together and, and kind of work our way through it. Whereas the kind of, you know, normal working life, it's like, well, whatever. Day-to-day humdrum. Yeah, Is exactly. that your thing? No, God, no. Slow, this is going to sound daft, actually. I've just thought this through in my head. Slow and steady, <laughs> day in, day out. It's not my kind of thing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> we are absolutely doomed. <laughs> but it's not going to be that out on the water, is it? The, the strange it, thing is, mate, yeah. and, and that I, I really, I totally understand what you're saying there. Yeah. In, in terms of you know, slow and steady, day to day, is not my thing. And a lot of people listening to this are going to be going. It's like definition of slow and steady, day to day. But I like, I really understand. I think where your brain is at that yeah. is that the slow and the, the where other people see slow and steady day to day, you don't. You see the like the massive overall picture of we're rowing an ocean here. Yeah, and like it's a really difficult thing to achieve, and hardly anyone thinks we can do it. And like no one gives us a, a shot at a, a world record, and I will be awesome at being slow and steady day to day because it's achieving this massive thing outside of that. And you look at that as opposed to the sort of day to day function. Would that be fair? Have I got that right? Yeah, because I, I don't see it as slow and steady. You know, every two hour slot, you know, whatever rhythm we end up adopting is really important. You can't just go and have two hours off because you're not feeling up to it. You've got to crack on with it. And, you know, you can have good slots, you can have bad slots, and it's it's actually about how you can how you can maximise your bad slots that makes the difference. You, and, you know, anyone can go and do two-hour chunk and it be a really good one. But how do you make your bad ones not really, really bad? Just that little bit better. So from that perspective, it's not day to day, it's not mundane, it's, it's lots of chunks of time that you've got an opportunity to chip away at that, that record. Do you know what, I had a conversation with Aaron um, a 
couple of weeks ago in relation to um, we were talking about performance generally, and um, one of the things that cropped up was Alan was talking about um, because he's had COVID um, mm. and has struggled quite badly with COVID for about six weeks, and he was really kind of down on the fact that his performance and his training has obviously been hugely impacted by that. And one of the one of the things that came out of the conversation was, and the reason I'm bringing it up now is because of what you've just said, is that my my response to him was that peak performance, which is what he was talking about, is almost irrelevant. Mm. And actually, optimising performance at any given time is what we're after. And so, you know, the conversation I had with him was stop thinking in terms of peak performance. Start thinking in terms of optimising performance. And so, coming back to you, like, if you have a, a bad two-hour slot, it's not about can I cover X amount of distance or put down X amount of watts of power or whatever... It's about, okay, you're not going to be at your peak during that two-hour slot, but, you, in fact, you might be 30% or 40% off your peak. But can you optimise that, that two hours mm. and maybe instead of being 40% down, be 35% down? And I kind of asked him to just spend a week or two of thinking about his training and about building back to where he was before, just concentrate on optimising everything you can. When you've had a long day at work and you come home and, like, I don't know, you've kicked the dog and, like, your missus is shouting at you and, you know, just, like, optimise that hour that you put on in, in on the erg. And it might be rubbish, but make it the best rubbish you can. Well, there's, there's, there's two examples in my head up. I can think of that you're reminding me about. Yeah. One is you look at GC riders, general classification of, of Chris Frooms and people. Um, a lot of their game is not being a superstar. It's there are times where they need to be that, but it's actually about not letting your rivals take games. It's about minimizing minimizing the impacts when you're having a bad day. That's that's where they're they're kind of superhuman. But the, the other one is um, Redgrave and Pinson, right? Two of the greatest rowers ever, you know, best Olympians, absolute legends. A lot of their training and their mentality was about being able to go out and win, you know, the Olympics, the World Championships, whatever race they're in, when they're having their worst day. So that their everything that they trained towards was like, not we're going to win if we have the best row everything kind of clicks and comes together it's like if we have the worst race we've ever done we're still going to win so they're, they're, it's like a completely different mindset you know a lot of the way we I do it myself I'm going to win I've done all this training and if I just you know if I perform at my peak and I do all this then I'm going to win but actually it's like turn it on its head how do I win when I'm not performing Two or three times during this conversation, um, you've alluded to or spoken about that kind of stuff mm. and about you know performing when you're not at your best, um, about you know um, doing you know optimizing stuff. And I, I'm curious about, and you even you spoke sort of very briefly about 
the mentality behind that and the change that that brings in terms of pressure. Because you said earlier on about, you know, when you spoke to us and we were like, <laughs> we're all going to break. <laughs> like, just get rid of that now. <laughs> you know, none, none of us are going are gonna to be superheroes through this. We're, we're just four guys that are going to do our best and that's yeah. that. Um, and that, even when you're talking about, you know, the Red Grave Pinson thing, about turning it around and, you know, we're going to have bad days. Do, do you, like, does that take pressure off? Mentally, how, how does that... Because for me, I look at that and go, by relieving that mental pressure, you then put yourself in a much better place, you'll then perform better anyway, and it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. I, I, think, <coughs> I think it probably does, because I, I'm certainly used to be my own worst critic. Yes. Which can be good in some instances, but can also be quite detrimental when you're putting too much pressure on yourself and you're not taking that kind of step back. So it, it possibly is, you know, in reaction to that potentially negative psychological state where you say, actually, let's turn it, turn it on its head. Let's try and take some of that pressure off. Let, let yourself perform and, and have the confidence that you can perform on a bad day and, and not punish yourself too much when you think, you know, you must have been in situations yourself where, you know, you're trying to perform and it's just for whatever reason, things aren't feeling right or things are hurting or just, you know, life's against you, whatever. And it's really easy to then let that pressure build because you know you're not performing where you should be. And actually that pressure can then ultimately make you hit a wall. Um, certainly doesn't get you out of that kind of funk. So you need to try and release that pressure to say, do you know what? I'm not going to hit a PB or I'm going to be miles off what I want to be doing how do we just get more out of what I'm capable of doing right now how do we maximise that the psychology of um, changing that you know that lens that you look at the world through the lens that you look at that problem through whatever mm. um, I'm guessing is is that something that you're doing with your teams at work a lot trying to change that perspective trying to relieve that pressure and if so how do you do that I mean we spoke a lot about how you feel about it but how do you how do you look at doing that in other yeah. people I think a lot certainly in the work context a lot of what I try and do is simplify things for people a, a lot of the people I have in my, my teams or come through my teams are you know very very intelligent great at processing lots of information uh, they really like getting into the detail of stuff and there's an element of perfectionism that where they're kind of everything has to be a hundred percent right you know before I want to show it to someone it's going to be a hundred percent right and actually a lot of what I think I, I, I do what I try to do is say do you know what 85 percent is good enough I'd rather have 85 percent of something tomorrow than wait three days for something that you think is 100%. And then when we look at it, it's actually, it's good, but it's gone the wrong wrong direction. So let's let's simplify it. Let's take some of that, that pressure off. And also then let's try and look at it, again, back to data. Let's look at whatever it is that you're doing. Turn it, turn it on its head. Let's look at it from the customer's perspective. What's important to them versus what's important to you may be two very different things. And we actually need to try and present that information so they understand it. Um, so, you know, a lot of the messaging that we have to sort of build when, when we're dealing with our customers is kind of looking at it and saying, right, how can we just play that back 
differently? How do we change? It's not really spin, but how do we kind of change the dialogue around it so that it's more accessible for whoever's receiving it or um, has it's more meaningful, I suppose. So that's a lot of the, the stuff I try and do with, with my guys and girls. Uh, okay, how are you going to do that with us? <clears throat> okay, even better than that, looking at where we are, what we've got to do, what we've done so far, um, what have we done wrong? How should we have done it? What do we need to change? I don't think... I don't think there is an answer to that in terms of the sort of preparation that we've done. I think it's more important now that we're starting to get out in the water and, and things. I think one, one thing that I would like to do more, would have done more, is because we've all had to train, you know, because of COVID, we've been training in isolation. There's not really been much sharing of, you know, this is the training I'm doing, these are the kind of stats I'm producing. Maybe if I did more of this, or if, if you did more of this, you'll see slightly different results. You know, that kind of um, learning from each other aspect. The overlapping we were hoping for at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, and we can't, we can't really change a lot of that because of the circumstances. But even today, again, being, being out for a little bit today, if I can help, you know, any one of us to... By that, he means me. <laughs> well, it's only because... <laughs> but you know what? Like today, if you could reduce the amount of effort you were putting in by 10%, mm -hmm. but actually make the boat move faster than we got it moving today, mm -hmm. um, i.e. not backwards, then... <laughs> that's a win right people listen to this now think that my rowing has moved backwards <laughs> I just that was the plan. we rowed today that was in like a 26 knot wind yeah. <laughs> so that's that's actually what he was referring to <laughs> my incompetent rowing was only marginally to blame <laughs> yeah no if, if like through training through technique through anything you know if like out of today we go actually we made some little changes we could go even the same speed but you're putting ten percent less effort in. Yep. That's a win, right? That's a that's a marginal gain. Mm -hmm. So it's, that's what we do next for me is much more important about than you know what's been happening over the last few months or the last year. I think a lot of it's obviously been out of our control, hasn't it? Let's yeah. be honest. We've we kind of the pandemic has decided for everything on every aspect of this for us. Um, I'm really excited about the time that we've got together as a team in the build-up to when we leave. You know, that, that period of time, I know we've got a lot of stuff that we've got to do, a lot of boxes we've got to tick, but I I really look at that and, and I can just see huge value and huge gains right across the board in that time. So oh, I'm, I'm really excited um, about... You know, ocean rowing's very different. Obviously, the boat is huge compared to, you know, racing boat. Um, but the old phrase you know ergs don't float so it's great we can look at some stats and things and you know we're going to be you know on a range in terms of where we're all at but it doesn't immediately translate to moving a boat through water so that that's why it's like i'm actually interested in kind of looking backwards because that's done and dealt with it's now it's what we do now how do we maximize time on the water how do we improve things you know how do we work out is it is it one hour shifts is it two hour shifts is it whatever and, and playing around with that stuff so we can then optimise what we're doing when we're out there. The, um, 
just just for anyone listening to this, we've we've spent today. We went to um, Bradford Water to essentially to try and get some drone footage and some pictures for social media and website, and to do a day's training. Um, unfortunately, we encountered a comedy wind, um, which when you're in an ocean rowing boat is a very very difficult thing to to, to work through. Um, we ended up with some reasonably substantial waves on a lake, which is quite interesting. <laughs> and as soon as we untied the boat, um, we then spent an hour and a half rowing flat out to try and get back to tie the boat up again, having realised we've made a mistake. <laughs> so that just like to, just to paint the picture, that's that's kind of what happened today. Um, we've got tomorrow is um, effectively a day where as a team we're not meeting up we've got nothing going on um, and then we are down to XMAP mm. for the sea trials hopefully um, I'm really curious to throw out to you what do you think we should or could be doing for gathering what information do you think we should be gathering how do you think we should approach it because like from my point of view mate i'm i'm blessed right in that i'm sitting in a four-man team and i look around me and i see just amazing minds basically mm. and amazing performance capability around us so i want to know from you and from darren and from aaron Okay, we're going down there. At the moment, it's just been like banging my head against that brick wall, getting us all in one place at one time mm. and getting the permission to actually get a slipway open. You know, it's been like the end of the world. And I haven't even had chance to consider the wider picture that you've probably been sat there thinking about. Is there, off the top of your head, things that immediately are jumping out of you that you think we should be doing, we could be doing, or is that something you want to have a think about and... Yeah, I haven't really thought about it in terms of when we're down in X-Men. I mean, what I'd love is for the weather to be really kind so we've got some nice calm water and, and no winds to worry about. To do two things, really. One is just go out and have a bit of a laugh and say, yeah, we're in the boat and have a bit of a splash around. And then actually do some stuff where we're starting to work together. You know, a lot of, again, it's all about not stopping the boat is something that you will hear me talk about a lot. You know, the more precise we are together, which is hard in an ocean because you're getting thrown around, but the more precise we are, the less we stop the boat. Um, you know, the more, if, if we're doing the same things at the same time, the less we stop the boat. So starting to work on some of that technique stuff, simple stuff, um, would be great. But also, because it's the first time we'll all be out on the boat and... I think there's the last part of it where we've just got to have a bit of a laugh, a bit of a splash around, learn what the boat's like. Um, I want to start thinking about you know, some of the technical gearing that we've got on the boat and you know, foot plate positions and all that kind of stuff. But that we can start dealing with that further down the line. Let's go and have a bit of a laugh. Let's see where we're at. Maybe have a beer or two afterwards, perhaps. I like to use the term carving up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's not having a beer. Yeah, we're sure. carving yeah, up. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Um, mate, that's pretty much from my side of it. 
every, everything that I wanted to ask. I just wanted to give people a flavour of you, really, and where you sit in the team and where you sit in life and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you. for. It's been emotional. Thank you for sparing some time to do this because I know your time is valuable. Um, I look forward to uh, eczema for you. Yeah, can't wait. Cheers, bud. Cheers. Well, everybody, there you have it, concluding this episode of the Endurance Limits podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode and we hope that you even found it insightful to hear from Simon about his thoughts and feelings regarding the upcoming project. If you are enjoying these episodes and this podcast, then there's a couple of things that you can do to help us out here. And that is to subscribe to the podcast and you can equally leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, That helps us out massively at the show, helps us get into new listeners' ears and share details of the project with more people who maybe haven't heard of us before, which would be amazing. If you'd like to stay up to date and in the loop with the Endurance Limits team and the project, then you can follow us on our social media channels. Just search for Endurance Limits on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Hit follow and we will magically appear on your newsfeed. You can equally go to the Endurance Limits website, www.endurancelimits.net, where you can read blog posts. And if you're in a position to, you can donate to the fundraising efforts of this project. We're going to be bringing you more episodes into the podcast. We're going to be doing more interviews and conversations with the team members and the crew members of the Endurance Limits team, as well as we want to do a Q&A. So if you go and follow us on social media, then you can ping us a question, shoot us a question. And in a future episode, we will answer any and all of your questions regarding the project and the team so be sure to do that but to wrap up this episode we sincerely thank you for listening and for listening all the way through we look forward to welcoming you on the next one peace